Romans chapter 1. We'll be moving on this morning in that chapter into verses 8 through 15 primarily, which are essentially still part of uh, an introduction that Paul is giving in this letter to a letter. And we've got to remember that this is a letter. And this is a letter to a church that Paul did not plant, nor had he ever visited. And yet he intended to visit them, as we'll see even in the text this morning. He wanted them to be aware of that. And remember, he was going to visit this church in Rome on his way to Spain. He wanted to take the gospel into Spain. The gospel had not yet gotten that far. And Paul, having the heart, as we saw from Romans 15, to bring the gospel to places where it had not been named, not only the heart to do it, but the obligation to do it, as an apostle set apart for that particular mission. And he was going to come to Rome and spend some time there with them, minister to them, and then to uh, uh, be sent on by them. He's assuming they will be willing to support him in his ministry to Spain. And in this book, really we call it a book of the Bible, but this letter he is unfolding his credentials in the beginning as he introduces himself and his authority as an apostle and his calling as an apostle, and then unfolding his theology before them, and specifically his theology about the gospel, the gospel concerning his son, the son of God. And so he begins by introducing himself then as this apostle set apart for the gospel of God, called by God himself. And he continues in verse 8, and let's read our text for this morning, verses 8 through 15. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness who I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I, am impart to, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles." I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's just pause now and ask God's help with this passage. Father, we come to you now in this very important time of a worship service that you have directed in your word where uh, the Bible is read and taught and exhorted from and preached and proclaimed. And so I ask that first of all, you would gift me to do what I am entrusted to do this morning, uh, that you would give me the spiritual gift of teaching and exhortation. Uh, and I ask that you would help us all to hear from you now in your word and that we, we would be built up and encouraged 
in the truth of this word and that we would be uh, motivated to respond to what we see here in our lives. We trust you for this. We know that we need your spirits working in us for this to be accomplished. We depend upon you for it. So we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. So a little bit of the structure, I guess. Let me just walk down this passage for a few a minute or so, and then I'll show you how I want to approach it. Paul, of course, is first and foremost expressing his thankfulness to God through Jesus Christ for this particular church in Rome or the believers in Rome because of their faith and the fact that their faith had become, by this point, famous around the Roman Empire. People were hearing about those in Rome coming to faith in Jesus. And he's explaining to them how, and he's actually calling God as his witness, that he's been praying for them sincerely from his spirit ministering to God and them and wanting, wanting, uh, wanting, to be, wanting to come to them and wanting to minister among them and impart a spiritual gift to them, strengthen them and be strengthened by them. But admitting that thus far he'd been prevented because of all his work he's doing among the other Gentile churches. And he makes the comment in verse 14 that he's under obligation to do this. To actually come to Rome because they fall under his ministry directive. Remember, he is the apostle specifically to the nations. And that included those in Rome. And so he's expressing to them, making sure they understand that he has desired to come to them and minister to them. Because the question could have arisen, why has Paul, if he's the apostle to the Gentiles and the nations, why has Paul not come to us? Why has he been absent from us? So he's, I'm sure, in part wanting to explain why it has taken him so long to get there, that he has wanted to come to them, that he has actually been praying for them and for the ability to come there. But this is how I really want to approach this passage this morning. That's kind of the main idea, main outline of what he's talking about here. But as we look at this passage, I want us to view Paul from this perspective, that he is here setting an example for us. There are so many things that he says in here. I mean, I could summarize what he was saying in just a few minutes, but if we really take the time to dissect some of these things, we learn really what the heart of a believer should be, what our intentions and desires and our service to God and others should be. Paul is an apostle to the Gentiles, meaning he's an apostle to us as well, because I think most people in here are, are Gentiles, so he's particularly our apostle, right? And much of what he gives, even in this letter, is just doctrinal instruction, just laying out theology and truth. But also, if you analyze Paul's life and ministry and teachings, you find much that I think we are to emulate. And that is really what true discipleship is. True discipleship is more than just teaching facts and knowledge about the Bible. It is really also living a life that demonstrates the truthfulness of the Scriptures and the power of the Gospel so that other people see it and they're being discipled just by your behavior or your speech or your conduct. Matter of fact, Paul told Timothy to not let anybody despise him for his youth, but to set the believers an example in speech and in conduct and in faith and in purity and in knowledge, to, to be an example to the flock. That's discipleship. And so we see that coming from the Apostle Paul. As a matter of fact, in Philippians chapter 3, Paul said it. We just read it this morning earlier, but in verse 17 he said, Brothers, join in imitating me 
And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. It's okay at times then to look into the scriptures at a man like Paul and see what he's doing and hear what he's saying and follow that example. I think the Spirit intends that in these opening verses. We're watching what he does, we're listening to what he does, and then although we do not have an apostolic ministry to the nations, there are principles here, and there are ways in which he responded to believers, and the ways in which he viewed ministry itself that we can take and apply into our lives. So, let's begin, and I have four or five of these points, and I'm just going to number them, okay? Number one... Paul's ministry was a ministry of persistent prayer. Paul's ministry was a ministry of persistent prayer, specifically for the people unto he, uh, uh, the ones he was ministering unto. He was always praying for them. That begins right there in verse 8. First, Listen to this. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing now, I mention you always in my prayers. Did you notice that? Paul is a man who prayed for others. He was praying for the ones he desired to minister to, even those in Rome whom he had never met. And he's lifting them up in prayer. As a matter of fact, this is a pattern you can find in most of his letters. Ephesians chapter 1, he opens it this way, verses 15 to 16. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. He said the same thing to the church in Philippi. Chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for, all, uh, for you all, making my prayer with joy. Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints. He's continuously praying for those he's ministering to. He's always praying for others. And do you know what one feature of Paul's is and what, what really of true Christianity is, it's this uh, feature of selflessness. I actually was thinking about this this week and there's a sense in which I think we can measure spiritual maturity by the growth of selflessness from an individual. And that selflessness comes out in prayer life. If our prayers are only about ourselves or what we need, or what we want. Now, they should contain those things. That's wonderful. And we have the privilege of praying about ourselves and our own lives to God. But if that's all we're praying about, that reveals not selflessness, but selfishness, right? And one thing all human beings share in common in their original nature is that of selfishness. And it is only through Christ and Christ's ultimate example of selflessness that we learn that we need to look at others more significant than ourselves. I mean, isn't that even what Paul said in Philippians 2? To make sure that you are having this mind in yourselves that was also in Christ Jesus? The Son of God who selflessly came into this world to live and die for sinners? To esteem others more significant than yourself? To put the needs of others before yourself? And certainly, friends, that will 
express itself in our prayer lives. Prayer is an absolutely vital component of any fruitful ministry. If you want to uh, pray for other people, you have to understand that without prayer it will come to nothing. The prayer is the main thing we do for other people. That if we expect any change to happen in others, any good thing to come from them, it must come from our prayers because it must ultimately come from God. See, when you're praying, you're acknowledging that God is the only one who can affect any change in anyone else's life. We can preach, we can proclaim, we can share the gospel until we are blue in the face. But unless God does the work, it's fruitless. And when we understand that, we will be praying for others, even more than we're talking to others. Ministry must always be bathed in prayer, and Paul understands that. You'll notice that he specifically thanks God for their faith. We saw that even in the other verses that we looked up. When Paul would hear the reports of people coming to faith in Jesus... What emotion welled up in his heart? Thankfulness. Thankfulness to God. And it's like when he would hear about this, he couldn't help himself but pause and thank God. With joy, he said to the Colossians. Like there is this real joy I have. Thank you, God, that these people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, have you ever thought, why would he thank God for their faith? I mean, it's their faith. They believed. I mean, God didn't believe for them. Why is God getting credit for this? Friends, the answer to that question is they believed because of God's gracious working in their lives. The implication is that had he not done his gracious working, they would not have believed. So Paul sees even saving faith as a result of this gracious working of God so that in the end, friends, God gets all the credit. Even for our faith, which according to Ephesians 2, is in and of itself a gift of God in what Paul means by you are saved by grace, you see. Does it excite you to hear about people coming to know Jesus who didn't know Jesus before? Does it excite you to see God's good work in other people's lives and in Christians' lives? Of course it does, because we give glory to God for this. Dr. Provost used to say, anything good that comes from me, I give God all the credit, and I'll take credit for everything else. God's gracious work in us, so we thank God for all of it. And he's thanking God for their famous faith, isn't he? Because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Of course, what Paul meant by that isn't literally the entire world, but the Roman Empire at that time, news was spreading throughout it all. That those in Rome, even in Rome, the capital of the pagan Roman Empire, people were coming to saving faith in Christ. And that filled Paul's heart with gratitude because God was being glorified in that. 
2 Corinthians 4.15 says this, For it is all for your sake, Paul said, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to what? To the glory of God. In other words, as grace continues to uh, spread, even through the Roman Empire and into Rome itself, the heart of the empire, people are coming to saving faith in Jesus by the grace and power of God, and then God is being thanked and God is being glorified for this. You know, really, that is the true fuel for any missions, and Paul being a true missionary, his, his fuel, his motive was the glory of God when non-worshippers of God turn from their sin and idolatry and become worshippers of God through faith in Jesus. That is the motivation, true motivation for missions. It, ex- it increases thanksgiving to God all for His glory. My former lead pastor was in missions for a time and he was invited once to a missions conference at a pretty large school and there were lots of people there. And there, was, there the theme was six billion reasons for global missions. And the idea was At that time, there were 6 billion people, give or take, in the planet. And these are the reasons for missions, 6 billion reasons for missions. So he gets up to preach, and the first thing he says is, there are not 6 billion reasons for missions. There is one reason for global missions, and that is the glory of God. It is the missionary wanting to see God glorified through saving sinners. And when they see sinners turn from sin and idolatry, and now those sinners become worshipers of God, God is glorified, and that's what motivated Paul. And that will really keep the fuel of missions in your heart going when you're like, liking of people starts to wane. Love for people will never be enough fuel to motivate you, but love for God, boy, that will keep you fueled for ministry. When you want to see God glorified through His power, when you want to see what Paul says in verse uh, 16 to be true, that the gospel is the power for salvation to everyone who believes. He'd say that and he'd say, I'm not ashamed of it. It's the power of God into salvation to everyone who believes. Just look at the Romans. Now they believe in Jesus. A few years before, they had never heard of Jesus. And now they're turning from idolatry to Christ. That will keep one motivated for missions. And you'll notice in verse 10 that Paul is always seeking God's will in his prayers. His will for ministry. He's mentioned a number of times here. He said, I've wanted to come to you, but I've been hindered. He says in verse 13, But he says in verse 10, listen to this, always in my prayers, asking somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. You know, sometimes in ministry we get good and bright ideas. Things that we see that need to be done. And man, somebody should be getting this done. Things that need to do. Sometimes it's what the church needs to do or sometimes it's what you need to do. We just need to get these things done. But see, friends, 
Paul's mind is, you're right, that may need to be done, and that may be a really good thing, but we really need to make sure this is in accord with the will of God, in his timing and his purpose. You know, did, did he ever make it to Rome? Paul ever make it to Rome? Yeah, he did, didn't he? But it wasn't under the conditions he thought he was going to get to Rome in. It was the will of God for him to get to Rome. But did you know, if you just turn in your Bible's left, like one page to Acts 28, he arrives in Rome. And in chapter 28, verse 16, and when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Paul made it to Rome, but it was chained to a Roman a centurion about six feet away from him, and that's the condition he stayed in for his entire stay. Verse 30, chapter 28, he says, He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This isn't what he envisioned, like being imprisoned and stuff, but this is the way God's will worked out. That he would go to Rome and testify to the gospel of the kingdom, but it would be in chains. And God would open up doors for him. Somebody might say, well, why did God do that? I mean, God could have, man, if God would have let loose Paul and he could have, not people just coming to him, but he could have then went out and been preaching to Rome and gone to the synagogues and found other disciples and made more disciples. Think of the influence he could have had. But see, did you know that when he was in this imprisonment, when he finally made it to Rome, he wrote... Ephesians. Does anybody here think that Ephesians has been pretty profitable for the church to have? Or how about Philippians, Colossians, Philemon? Did you know that that he wrote those while in prison? And in that, in Philippians, we get a hint that through his imprisonment there, Romans, Roman uh, 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 members of Caesar's household came to faith in Christ through his imprisonment. You see, God knows what he's doing. And we can have desires to do things and they can be very good things, but we always have to make sure that we're keeping it in the will of God. And sometimes we don't understand why he doesn't allow us to do what we want to do or go where we want to go. And we just have to be patient. Remember the Old Testament, there was a phrase that appears over and over again to the children of Israel. Wait on the Lord. Wait on him. He knows what he's doing. And oftentimes he will, he, he's going to give us the desires of our heart like he did for Paul to get to Rome, but it's not always as you had envisioned. And I'm sure he sat there saying, boy, this isn't exactly how I thought I would get to Rome. But this was God's will. Keep in mind always what James said, four, chapter 4, verses 13 to 15. Come now you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. This was the way that Paul prayed. It was for people and it was in accordance with the will of God. So his ministry was saturated in persistent prayer. Number two, verse nine primarily Paul's ministry was one of spiritual sincerity. And I'm sure this was very important for him to communicate to this church who had never heard of him 
when Paul was no stranger to the fact that bad reports about him, false reports, were being spread among the churches. And he says in verse 9, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you. He actually calls now God as his witness to the sincerity of his service to God. This comes from my spirit. I don't think he's talking about the Holy Spirit there. His inner man. I serve God according to my inner man. This is sincere. This is real. I'm not some kind of swindler or peddler of the word of God for money. I'm not a false apostle as there were false apostles at this time. I am sincere. God is my witness. I'm praying for you and I want to come to you and serve you and minister to you. And he uses that little phrase, whom I serve. I thought this was interesting, so I thought I would draw it out. There's a number of words in the New Testament for serve that are translated in our English Bible, serve. This one has reference specifically to service to a God. You could even work with this word to make it say worship whom I worship in my spirit through the service I'm doing that's the understanding and the reason I draw it out is because he'll bring it out for all of us again in chapter 12 verse 1 which we will look at many many moons from now where he says I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship there it is our entire lives then as Paul are to be lived in the worshipful service to God from our hearts in my spirit this isn't fake or pretentious it's not outward outward formality that I'm doing here I'm sincere in what I'm doing I need you to know that I'm calling down God as my witness the one who knows my heart what I'm doing here I'm doing out of sincerity My ministry is sincere. I'm serving God in sincerity. You know, it becomes very easy for us when we take about different ministries or services to God. We volunteer for a ministry or we're taken on task and all of a sudden it becomes very external. Like it can become very easy to just do what we're doing because we have to do it because others are going to see us do it or they're going to notice we're not doing it there's many different motives other than the sincerity from my heart from my spirit in worship to God that what I'm doing in worship to God and friends I'm not throwing stones because I know what it's like to do that but what do we do in those times we go to God who knows our hearts and we say I need you God to work in my heart a joy to work in my heart a worship of you that will express itself in a willing ministry whatever it is I'm called to do that particular day and friends he will grant that because he wants to be glorified in it but we need to be aware of that and friends if you are trying to reach people with the gospel or you're trying to disciple people then they need to know that your faith is real that your service of God is sincere and from the heart There's so much pretentiousness in our world. There's so much fakeness in our world. Just look at the political realm. If you believe, friends, that for one second, that any, well, I won't say any, there may be some, but if most politicians, frankly, do not have your best interests at heart. 
We make jokes about them because they're true jokes. <laughs> they're not sincere in what they're doing. And unfortunately, that just doesn't affect the political realm, it affects the church. There's a lot of fakeness in ministry that has been damaging to people. Pastors and church leaders of entire movements who have been exposed as fake, insincere, men who nobody would have saw that coming. There have been many who get on television and just plead for money over and over again. I was talking to somebody recently and they were relaying an experience they had in a church of a health, wealth, prosperity church and it dawned on them that everybody in the church was poor except the pastor. And that started to seem rather odd. But Paul wanted them to know that this was not him. That he was a man gripped by God, saved by Jesus Christ, sincere in his spirit. He was serving God in sincerity. And he went out of his way and all of his ministry to make sure nobody got the wrong idea about him or could be skeptical about his motives. Number three, Paul's ministry was one of spiritual strengthening. Verses 11 and 12. He says, For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Notice in verse 11 there is his priority in getting to them. He wants to be able to impart to them a spiritual gift to strengthen them. Now immediately somebody will say, what is the, what's the spiritual gift he wants to strengthen them with? And my first answer to that question is, it doesn't matter, or the text would tell you. But remember now, apostles had more than one spiritual gifting. And he could do many things by the Spirit of God, and so perhaps he didn't have anything particularly in mind. He would wait, show up, and see what the Spirit did through him. But his whole purpose, the point of this, is that what he wanted to do is get there, be with them, see them, so that in person he could be a channel through which God would strengthen and bless in that congregation. He wanted to be used of God with spiritual gifting and power to benefit others, to strengthen them, to build them up. Remember what I was talking about in selflessness? How so very important this is in our church life. You know, we, we've got to change our paradigm in how we view church. Because for too long it has been, what does this church, we find church based on what it gives to me. We decide whether we're going to go or not based upon how much it's going to benefit me. We decide what ministries we're going to partake in based upon sometimes how it's going to benefit me. That was so foreign to Paul's thinking. Like his priority was, I want to get there, be with you, because I want God to use me to strengthen you. I remember Dr. Mazak chewing out the seminary students when I was in seminary for ditching out on like the Wednesday night prayer meetings at their church. Because at that time, most of those churches had a Wednesday night prayer meeting, didn't have the small groups we have and things, but 
you could relate to a small group or whatever else, and they would ditch out on it because they felt they were busy. And I remember him saying, how selfish is that of you? How do you know that God didn't want to use you to encourage a brother and sister in Christ that night? I'm not saying we got to go to everything. But what I'm saying is this. When we think about what we're going to go do, what we're going to participate in, it needs to be a decision based on more of, uh, more of others and less ourselves. How about that? How about if churches are designed not so much worrying about what people want because people are consumeristic, but more on what would be beneficial and profitable spiritually for those who do come. A mark of Christian maturity is an increasing selflessness in all things. Paul wanted to be used to minister to others. But that doesn't mean, look at verse 12, that he didn't believe he was going to be encouraged as well. He didn't have this pride of like, well, I'm Paul and you can't do anything for me, right? He knew that if he came in to be a blessing, that he would be mutually encouraged. That by each other's faith, he says, both yours and mine will be encouraged in this meeting. He wanted to be with them for that, for this strengthening and building up. And did you notice that a key important phrase, I long to see you. In other words, he could write to them, but that's not enough. They could write to him, that's not enough. True believers have a longing to be with the other people of God. And when they don't, that's an indication that something's wrong, you see. You know, I hope one thing we've learned in the pandemic is that live streaming isn't sufficient. It's helpful at times, but it's not a replacement. And in case you've been watching any of the news or that and keeping up with Christian culture, we will never have a virtual reality service here. We need to be with one another. Hebrews 10, 24-25, let us consider now how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Do you know God did not intend for His assemblies to be a burden to His people? Sometimes I think we have the same problem that Jews had under the Old Covenant. Sabbath was such a burden to them. It became a burden. Burdensome. Jesus clarifies with them and explains to them, this was given for you as a blessing, for your encouragement and your edifying and your strengthening. You've turned it into a burden. So we need to make sure that our hearts stay right in this, that we see the services, especially this one. This is the priority. We tell this to people, this is the priority of your week. This service here, the corporate worship, And then we always recommend people find one other thing during the week. We have some Bible studies and some small groups and different things. You find something else if you can. But this is the priority, that you make this the priority, and that God says this was a good idea for your strengthening. This is why we say at CBC we exist for the glory of God and the good of His people. And this is part of the good of His people that we're together. God never designed His people to be living in isolation 
or alone with just them and their family on a couch watching a service. This was not God's design. As a matter of fact, the Greek word ekklesia simply meant, in, the orig- uh, in Paul's day, it meant assembly. It was a gathering of people for a specific purpose. That was an ekklesia. That's a church. We're gatherers. Number four, his ministry, of course, was gospel-centered. This has come out so much. We talked about this last week. He was in verse 1, Romans 1, set apart for the gospel of God. He clarifies what that is. It's the gospel concerning the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Verse 9, he uh, serves with his spirit in the gospel of his Son. In other words, all of his ministry and service to God is in the sphere and realm of the gospel of his Son. Everything that he says and springs forth from what he's going to teach or write is all centered in on Jesus Christ and the good news from God about him, you see. It's gospel-centered. As a matter of fact, in verse 15, he said, I'm eager to come to you all and preach the gospel to you. He wanted to do that in person. Everything Paul did was gospel-centered, specifically upon the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And what he did, he did, verse 5, for the sake of his name among all the nations. His entire ministry was saturated with the gospel of Christ. This entire letter, all 16 chapters, are going to be saturated in the teaching about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul knew, verse 14, he had the obligation by God to bring this gospel to everyone. That's the point of verse 14. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. doesn't matter where they're from or who they are. It doesn't matter if they're the sophisticated Greeks or the unsophisticated barbarians. If they're wise and intellectual or if they're, quite frankly, foolish... It doesn't matter. I'm obligated to bring the gospel to all of them because the gospel is for all of them, you see. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Everyone must hear the gospel, was Paul's heart. So he longs to bring that gospel out as we have talked about it. But you'll notice this in verse 15, and this is very important. He says, So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. In other words, Paul believed and understood that the gospel was not just for the lost. That actually those believers in Rome whose faith had become famous by this time, who were already believing in Jesus and worshiping Jesus, needed to hear the gospel preached to them. Friends, one of the biggest mistakes we can make is that we start to think of the gospel as something we heard once, you know, when we got saved, and then we don't need it anymore. Friends, if that were the case, we wouldn't study the book of Romans. Because what Paul's going to do in these chapters is unpack the gospel and all its implications and all its glory and beauty for you. You need the gospel every day. Do you understand? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, he said, now I would remind you, brothers, I'll remind you, brothers now, Christians, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you now currently stand, and by which you are now being saved. You need this gospel, friends. We need the truth about God's salvation in Christ. We need the truth about Jesus Christ, really, every day of our lives. And this will prevent you, friends, from being discouraged or 
uh, in your sin. This prevents you from becoming legalistic in what you do. You're always being reminded of the good news of God's Son, Jesus Christ. I'll close with this. I, when I was with SGA, I went to a youth conference. And I've shared this with some of you, I think, in the newcomers class. When, uh, but uh, I'll share it again. Uh, this, I was there to display for the organization and such, and it was probably about four or five days long, and there were hundreds of youth, Russian youth in the United States, that uh, I- immigrant families that were here, and they came from Russian churches that are uh, scattered throughout the U.S., and so hundreds of these kids there, and I was able to listen to, it was mostly in Russian, and, but I was able to listen to a lot of it through translations, so it was just picking up on the different sermons and such. And I don't want to disparage anybody, but that entire, that entire week, all I heard was young people being called out for the sins that young people often fall into. So it was a lot of, you need to, you know, not do drugs, and you need to not drink, and you need to not have sex outside of marriage, and you need to stop looking at pornography, and you need to, you need to do this, and you need to do that. And, and I just kept hearing all of this, really, what we would call law. A lot of thou shalt nots and thou shalts. And I didn't hear one clear presentation of the good news for sinners about what God has done for sinners in Jesus Christ. And on the very last day, they had everybody in this really pretty big stadium. And the man gets up there and he's saying, uh, you know, you're all, you, you all need to repent. Now, you know you haven't been living the way you're supposed to. You need to turn from that. You need to repent. Quit, quit living the way you're supposed to. And kids were streaming down. I'm not kidding you. Streaming down the aisles of this large room and tears streaming down their face. And I remember thinking, I just wish I could get up. Just give me the mic. Somebody translate for me so that I can share the good news to these kids. That Christ has died for their sins. The good news that that He gives them the Spirit of God within them so that if they are struggling with sin, they can have victory. That they're no longer slaves to sin because as Paul will tell us in Romans 6, they're no longer under the dominion of sin, they're under grace. And I was talking to a guy about that conference, a man who was well-known in those circles trying to help out and stuff, and I was giving him a ride to the airport I don't know how much longer later, and we were talking about this very thing, and I shared with him just what I shared with you. And he said, well, I, I know that. He said, that conference was for Christian kids. And so, and this is what he said, and I quote, they don't need the gospel. Friends, that is ridiculous. It is the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation, not just the day you believed, but your entire life. It is the gospel in which you stand, you see. It is the gospel by which you are being saved, so that every day you're looking to Christ as you're running this race with endurance, the author and finisher of your faith, and remembering what He has done for you. We need the gospel to strengthen and to sustain us in our walks with God every single day. And that's exactly what Paul's going to do. He's going to show you so much more about the gospel. 
keep that in mind. It's the theme, essentially, of the entire letter. That's what we'll kick off with next week in 16 and 17. It's a theme of the whole letter that he's not ashamed of. The gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. So let's pray to God that we would be a people saturated in prayer, spiritually sincere, selflessly strengthening others and centered on the gospel of Jesus. Let's pray that now. Father, we thank you for your word. We know it comes from you. It is helpful to us. It's encouraging to us. And especially the message about your son. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you that we know exactly what Paul means when he says, it is the power, it is your power for salvation. We know what he means because it's been that to us. And God, I'll ask you again, if there's someone here that has not experienced that, will you please call them from death to life this morning that they would look to Jesus and be saved. Amen.